Go ahead and open to Hebrews 2, if you would, please. Hebrews chapter 2. And we will jump in there in just a minute. Has it been a good weekend for y'all? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is it a bad weekend? Good. Well, we can start today. Um, I've said this many times, but I love history, I love military history, and I love World War II history. And um, somebody asked me where my intrigue started, and, and, you, and it probably started when I was like five and started playing with G.I. Joes. Um, and just always had this interest in, in military stuff. And uh, as I got older, I started collecting things. I think I found a helmet at a garage sale and a canteen at a thrift store and thought it was cool and kind of had a couple little items and as I got older I started buying some more things and bought a few World War II guns and I started looking into the, the history of my grandfathers who were both in the war and, and then started reading books and, and, and learning all about it and I read this great book by Stephen Ambrose who's kind of one of the guys who's most known for writing on, on World War II and he wrote a book on D-Day and D-Day, if you remember from your history classes growing up, was the invasion of France. Uh, it was a turning point of the war. It's when um, uh, we were able to get a strong foothold into Europe, and that was what was the beginning of the end of World War II to defeat the Nazis and the Axis power. Now, D-Day was a huge endeavor. We all kind of know that. Uh, if you've seen Private Ryan, um, Band of Brothers, all that stuff has got you know, D-Day stuff and the invasion. and um, But when I started reading about it, I knew it was a big deal. I knew it was a huge undertaking. Um, but I started reading some of the numbers, and it kind of it kind of painted a bigger picture. I knew it was a big deal, uh, but when you start reading some of the numbers, it starts to paint a much, much bigger picture. So all I want to do is just tell you some of the numbers that are involved in, in, in the invasion of one army into a country, okay? First of all, 13 countries participated in the invasion. That's a lot, all right? 13 different countries. Um, it was an invading force, all right? Now, the invading force is defined as the people who uh, got off the boats onto the ground or who were dropped into, all right? Not all the supporting, but the invading force. Any, anybody have an idea? People who kind of jumped off the boats and ran onto the beach. 13,000. 13,000? 16? 50, 16? Right, hundreds of thousands. Hundreds of thousands. Mm. 4. 4. 3. On that day? On that day. On that day. Oh. Uh, Probably. 156,000. Okay. okay. That's a lot of people. Okay. That's a lot of boats. Um, 22, uh, 7,000 naval vessels. All right. 7,000 naval vessels from 13 different countries and 160,000 men uh, cross the sea. Now that's not, on top of that, you have 200,000 naval personnel who were part of manning the ships and, and bombing and all that kind of stuff. Uh, this is a pretty tiny area, you know what I mean? Like we're talking an area of like Sullivan's and IOP. You know, it's not like we're talking about, uh, you know, invading 
you know, a, a whole country. It was, it was a little, it was kind of like a doggy door in. All right, so this is a pretty concentrated area. Uh, 2,200 bombers. All right, so 2,200 airplanes that just for a pretty short period of time, you looked up and the sky was like black with airplanes. Just 7,000 naval vessels, 200,000 naval personnel. Somebody said 13,000. There were, that were, there were 13,000 paratroopers, okay? So paratroopers just falling everywhere. Um, and as you read accounts, you read, I like to read the personal stories. You know, like you've got, you know, the generals, you write their memoirs, and that's fascinating. And you see the magnitude, like how do you organize 7,000 ships from 13 different countries to attack at D-Day and Tower? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right then at that time. Um, uh, it was actually originally planned to be the day before, but weather bumped it for a day. So what, you know, what do you do for an extra day with 156, actually 356, 356,000 people, you know, like hold tight. You know what lunches would look like that day? Like you, you would just go hungry. Um, and it goes on and on and on, but it's, it's mind blowing. And when you read the personal accounts of people who were on those ships, hunkered down with their flak jackets on and their helmet, and they looked out and as far as you could see, was ships that side, and as far as the eye could see, was ships on that side. And they turn around, and there were ships back there. And then when all of those ships dropped everybody off, they went back and got more, you know, and just kept going, kept going. And then to look up and just see wave after wave after wave of the bombers, and see the ship after ship after ship that was behind them supporting with artillery firing, and just thinking, there are, I mean, I mean, Mount Pleasant has got what 80, 60, 70, 80,000 people alone. Um, it was just, it was just huge. Now, we're gonna, we're gonna go back to that, but I just kinda wanna get, get the head around something that we know historically that was massive and monstrous and um, hard to get your head around because it was so big. And as we look at Hebrews chapter two, we see that the author takes a few moments to really explain the massive magnitude of what, what Christ has done in the context of history. Okay, so with that in mind, try to make that connection with me, the massive um, magnitude of what Christ has done in the context of history, uh, let's look at some of these verses. So we're going to start in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, and we're going to read right now just verses 5 through 10. I've got the ESV. It says this, Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, quote, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. What we see here um, is the author is taking us uh, in, in a very quick scope of history and the role that Jesus Christ plays in the total scope of history. Verse 5 it says, Now it was not to the angels, all right? And so this is drawing attention to the fact that these things that we're talking about here were not designed for anybody. And in contrast, who is it for? It was for Jesus Christ. Now it was not 
to the angels that God subjected the world to come, meaning future things, the age to come, the final judgment, the fulfilled end, uh, the, the coming um, finality of, of, of creation that we see through the prophetic books. Now it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So we see an example of, let me move this thing up a little closer, the future. That the future, all the future, is given to the authority of Jesus Christ. So we have the future here. Not subjected to angels, but to Christ. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. Moving on, quote, the second half of verse 6 here. This is a quote from Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. It says, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This is a psalm that is, um, let me, I want to read. Um, this is Psalm, this is a quote from Psalm chapter 8, verse, verses 4 through 6. The beginning of the psalm you'll recognize. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. How many of you have ever sung that song? Back in the 80s, Michael W. Smith, I think, wrote it. Oh Lord, our Lord. You know that one? <laughs> how majestic is. He got it from this song. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. All right, this is drawing a, a giant scope of creation. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? All right, it's a legitimate question asked. Like how, when you look up into the heavens and you see the greatness of the grandeur of all of creation, and it draws, it's so big that it draws attention to your smallness, Hopefully you've all been there. You've ever been looking at the stars at night and just been like, wow, who am I? I'm just this little person on this little earth. That's the same thing that the psalmist is saying here. When I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is a man that you are mindful of him? What is a man that you would care for, for, for little me, God? But it goes on. What is a man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The son of man, this is speaking of the coming Christ. All right, as, as the representative for all of mankind. Verse 5, Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, meaning when Jesus Christ came to this earth, he suspended some of his God character traits for the time that he was on this earth. We see that in Philippians chapter 2. Um, and you crowned him with glory and honor, and you have given him dominion over the works of your hands, that you have put all things under his feet. So the section in Hebrews 2 that is a reference to Psalm 8 is speaking of the pre-existent Jesus Christ because it is saying that this, this was written in 1000 B.C., all right, Psalm, Psalm 8. But yet it's speaking of the future coming Son of Man, Christ. But it's speaking um, almost as if it's happened in, in the past, that there is a there is an already but not yet tone to this, if you've ever heard that. Mm -hmm. That Jesus Christ, uh, who is and who, who was and who is and who is to come, um, pre-existed. And that there is a foreknowledge of God that knew that all of this was going to happen and ordained it from the beginning of time. And so the writer of Hebrews is referencing this 
as a shout out to say, look, look, because it's it's Hebrews is written to people who are pretty trained in the law, so they knew Hebrew or they knew Psalms, they knew Psalm chapter eight, and they knew what it was talking about, and that it was speaking of the coming Christ. So we have a, a representation of Christ um, in the past, all right. <laughs> So in verse 5, it is the world to come. In verse 6, 7, and 8, we see this reference that was written in 1000 BC that speaks of the coming Christ. Yet at the same time, it says, you have crowned him with glory and honor, already putting everything under subjection to him. So verse 5 speaks of the things to come are under subjection to Christ, and everything is under subjection to Christ we see in reference to the past. Now, if you keep going in uh, verses, the second half of verse 8, at present, you see that? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So the author is saying, but we look around, we see that there's still sin in the world, um, that Christ right now um, is at the right hand of God, but, but, but Satan still rules the day for now, that he has not reached the final judgment yet. At present, at present, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. Verse 9, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Now, the author here um, and the body that he was writing to were not firsthand witnesses of Jesus Christ. All right, so they're saying that we, we've seen him, but we've seen him in the fact that he has come. He has made himself a man and that he has appeared on earth. But we, verse 9, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So these first couple verses here are painting this, the scope of, of Jesus Christ and his role in history past, in history future, and in the present time. We see in the book of Revelation... You've got your little red letter Bible. These are in red letters because it's the word of Jesus. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Have you heard that before? I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come. It goes on to say in, in Revelation 21.6 that I am the beginning and the end. That I have pre, I have, I have pre-existent, the pre-existent Christ existed in eternity past, and he exists now at the right hand of God, and he exists future. Now, this is not the nature of you and I. You know, we have a very specific starting point. And in your, in your life, if you're a Christian, then you see your life in the context of there's a point when you were born, um, and then there's a point when you came to know Jesus Christ, and we put our hope in our faith, in our trust, in the fact that we will, in fact, be glorified one day, and that we will reach... Um, that we will reach heaven and that we will have perfected body and that we have, we have the eternal hope. Um, but what the author of Hebrews here is, is trying to paint a bigger picture of saying, this is a big deal. Like, I know you know this is a big deal, but this is a bigger deal than you think. All right? we, have, we have eternity, past and present, and then you have us at the present time. We don't see all this coming together. But we have a greater hope that this, this person that we are speaking here, Jesus Christ, right, we're not speaking of God the Father. We've made that distinction here. That Jesus Christ 
the Son of God has pre-existed, and he was at work in the redemptive plan a thousand years ago, even though he wasn't physically here, but he was at work in his redemptive plan. He came to earth, he was seen by mankind, doing his work in the redemptive plan, and in the future he will be at work, and he will continue to work. It's It's big. That sounds so small to say that. But this, this, this plan that, that, that the author is writing out for us um, is trying to draw the audience's attention to the fact that, this, that we need to gra grasp the scope of the redemptive story. And it's more than just the fact that it's at a single point in time, Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and died. It is huge, and it encompasses all of history. At the end of verse 9, is kind of what I like to look at. I, in my notes, I, I kind of made a note. I said, this, this is like the glory statement, the second half of, of verse 9. Jesus, crowned with glory, why? Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, meaning God the Father, he might taste death for everyone. Mm -hmm. So that this, this God that we're describing here, that, that blows the mind in the scope of his existence and the work that he has been working on that goes beyond just the singular work of him on the cross, but eternity past, eternity future, did this so that that God might taste death for everyone. And there's a distinct shift in tone in the text here as we move into verse 10. It goes from giant magnitude to a very personal, intimate almost a one-on-one -on -one feel. Verse 10, let's look at this together. I'm going to read uh, 10 through 18, and then we'll go back. Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, that means God the Father, here. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, all right, that's Christians, those who have trusted Christ, should make the founder of their salvation, meaning Jesus Christ, perfect. Through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have all one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Let me go back through that. I kind of interrupted that. I'm going to read that story through. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Now, when I'm studying a text like this, I get caught up with the words. Like, who's the he in, in, this, in this section? Who is the sanctifier? Who are those who are sanctified? Like, what are we talking about here? Here's the one who holds all things together. All right, so let me reread this with, uh, with, with proper nouns. All right, verse 10. For it was fitting that God the Father, for whom and by whom all things together, in bringing many Christians, should make Jesus perfect through suffering. For Jesus, who sanctifies, and those Christians who are sanctified, all have one origin, God the Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call Christians brothers. That makes sense? Okay. So what the author here is saying in verses 10 and 11 is that he is taking this Jesus here in the first couple of verses and saying, look at the, the, the giant nature of the scope of this guy. But he's your brother. We're brothers. I mean, whenever you talk about brothers, it's, 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 a, it's drawing attention to 
the personal, you know? It's not, hey, this is a close friend of mine, but this is blood, you know? Blood is thicker than water, right? That this is, this is somebody that we have a, a familial connection with, and so we've got each other's backs. You know, that's the kind of tone that you have when you start speaking about brothers. And the rest of the text here talks about how this nature of this big, giant God in the, in the form of Jesus, uh, the Son, um, then draws all of this attention to the fact that he is very personal and has made himself a man so that he can be your brother. That is why, this is the end of verse 11, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and then he goes through with uh, two different Old Testament proofs, I will tell them of your name to my brothers. This is found in Psalm 22, 22. In the midst of the congregation, meaning other believers, I will sing your praises. The section in Psalm 22 that this is referencing um, also speaks of the death and suffering and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's the part of the book of Psalms that Jesus Christ himself quotes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me when he's dying on the cross? All right? So I will tell of... I will tell your name to my brothers. This is Jesus speaking here. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Verse 13, and again, all right, another proof, speaking of Jesus as brother. I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I and the children of God, the children God have given me. This is a reference to Isaiah chapter 8. And this is the section in Isaiah, um, right after this text, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 17 and 18, it moves right into the... Um, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. You know, the Christmas stuff. Uh, Mighty Counselor, Prince of Peace, that text. All right, so speaking of the coming Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and, flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not an angel that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Um, look at verses let's go back to verses 10 and 11 for it was fitting that God the Father for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering some people have, a, have difficulty with this text because they ask the question why did Jesus Christ need to be made perfect isn't he perfect by definition wasn't he perfect when he was born um, didn't he live a perfect life? Why, why did he need to be made perfect then? It says he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Some people also ask the question, if God in his perfection and his perfect plan, why couldn't he simply just send Jesus to this earth? Boom, Jesus exists. Boom, Jesus died for the sins of man and just get it over with. Why did he have to spend 33 years here? You know, what's the point of those first 30 years where he really wasn't involved in, in the ministry that we see? He was kind of just living life. Like the first miracles and first teachings didn't happen until his 30s. Um, and then there was such a long, drawn-out process of, 
of the death and suffering. Like, why couldn't he, if he was perfect, uh, why couldn't he just accomplish this in a more simpler fashion? But scholars and theologians will draw attention to the fact that the fact that Jesus Christ lived his life obediently, um, that he was perfect, that he continued in his perfection, and that he remained perfect even now. That he was perfect, right? And that while he lived on this earth, he remained perfect. And as a result of these things, in a sense, you could say that Jesus himself was being sanctified. Because it says, but we see him, or I'm sorry, but it was fitting that God saw it fitting, that God saw it appropriate, that God saw that it was a good idea um, in bringing many sons to glory that he should make his son, Jesus Christ, perfect through suffering, through an obedient life. That Jesus Christ was perfect, he was the son of God, but he continued to prove himself, that he showed it, that the fact that he lived an obedient life was actually necessary for him to become the perfect sacrifice for mankind. Mm -hmm. That he showed and proved his obedience, that this wasn't just this, hey, I'm God so I can do this. Like, hey, I have more power than you. You know, these temptations aren't a big deal for me because I'm God. But he lived day in and day out. That he faced temptation, that he was physically tried, that he was physically tortured, that he was physically persecuted, that he actually was hungry, that he was actually tired, that he was actually worn out. That he was actually frustrated, that he was actually, that he was actually, that he was actually, and that he maintained his uh, deity by his obedience. That he was made, that he was perfect, and he was made perfect. And think about yourself. If you're a Christian, all right, there was a point in time, by definition, if you're a Christian, that you were justified of your sins. That when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, at that point in time, you became saved, as we say, Right? All right, that your soul is secure, uh, you, you are in the hand of God, that no, nobody can take you out of his hand because he is God, and nobody can pry his fingers open, All right, that, that your sins have been forgiven, yet we're not in heaven yet, we're not glorified, we still struggle, we still have problems, we still sin, like technically one might say I'm, I'm not saved yet because I'm not in heaven, but the, the but the, your salvation is so certain and so secure, it's as if you're in heaven already. But you're not yet. So you were justified, and during the, the, the time between your justification and your glorification, that is called your sanctification. That you were in the process of continually being saved. So you are saved when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you're walking through this justified, but you're walking through this process of being saved and living that obedient life, which is what perseverance is, which is what steadfastness is, and which is what sanctification is, and that one day you will be saved. And it's this both and thing that can kind of blow the mind sometime, sometimes. So that when we see the life of Christ, we can see his working through his life, his, um, his eternal nature, but also in the actual life that you live physically on this earth, and we see how it plays into our own very salvation. Because, as the text continues in verse 11, it says, He who sanctifies, which is Jesus, 
He's the one who, who, who we are working with for our sanctification. And those who are sanctified, which are those of us that are believers, all have one origin, that we one have common denominator, that we all have one source, which is God the Father. So therefore, he says, and he gives the proofs from Psalm 22 and Psalm, or Isaiah chapter 8. In verse 14, um, it shows the great victory that Christ did when he participated in becoming a man, becoming brothers uh, with us. Since therefore, verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that Jesus Christ came as a man, that he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's a theme of subjection here, if you're picking up on that. The word subjection or subject is brought up over and over and over. It says that Jesus Christ is subject, or that he has subjection over all things in the past, that he is subject, all things are under his feet. And it says that he died so that he could have subjection then over death itself. And death is the one thing that bonds all people into bondage. If you are no longer afraid of death, if death has no fear for you in your life, then it changes It changes the way that you think, the way that you function, and really what you live for. But on the reverse side, if you are afraid of death, which by and large, most people out there, the greatest good is the preservation of life. Why? Because that's all we have, right? So the preservation of life, I want to live as long as I can, and while I'm living, I want to make it the best that I can. Um, and I'll, a lot of times people say I will go to whatever means necessary to live the best life that I possibly can. And what these verses are saying here is that when Jesus came and lived as a man and was as, as brothers with us, that he died so that he could destroy not only the devil, but the, the tool and the weapon that the devil has, which is death. And death is what keeps mankind in the slavery. Um, and then in verse 16, it says, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Adam, Adam excuse me, offspring of Abraham, once again drawing attention to the fact that the plan of salvation is for the children of men. In verse 17, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. I'm glad we don't use the word propitiation a whole lot. Um, it simply means to take and satisfy the wrath of God. So that when Jesus Christ came and lived and died, that he took the punishment that was due us, and he took it for us, so that he could be a, become a faithful and merciful high priest. And then verse 18 says this, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And we've heard that before. If you've grown up in the church, that's kind of the verse that people use as the, I know you're going through a hard time, but Jesus is there for you. You know? And it, I, I kind of call it like the Hallmark card verse a little bit. Um, and it's true. And I think that there is peace that can be found there. Uh, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, uh, that he is able to help those who are being, oh, he's, you know, he's walked in my shoes. The author here is working hard to draw attention first 
to the scope and the magnitude and the majesty of who Jesus Christ is and his redemptive plan, and that it is huge. He says in um, Ephesians, or 1 Peter 1, it says this, speaking of Jesus, 1 Peter 1.20, that he, meaning Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has made himself manifest in the last times for your sake. Meaning that Jesus and his plan before the foundation of the earth was known and established, but he made himself known for you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says this, And even as he chose us in him, speaking of Jesus, even as Jesus chose us in himself before the foundation of the world, the same verbiage. All right, so even back here, when Jesus Christ's plan was known, we were known. We were known. Coosdale, before the foundation of the earth, Chris Coosdale was known, you know? I mean, that this God cares about you personally, brothers. Now, this is not demeaning. This is not, not brothers as in like, um, hey, let's, let's downgrade the status and authority and supremacy of Jesus Christ. But there, there's some friction here in understanding <laughs> this and this. And the Hebrews needed to see this. You know, we read um, history. And we read, you know, in, in middle school history, and you read about World War II, you know, there might be a page or a paragraph of, of D-Day, you know? But you think of the tens of thousands that died and the, and the thousands of vessels and the hundreds of thousands of people and the millions of tons of bombs that were dropped and the blood that was shed and, like, the turning point of truly a defeat of really an evil empire. And, like, there's... I mean, all of the, the scope and the magnitude of all that happens, and we kind of read it in a paragraph, like that was a pretty big deal. And then you kind of move on. Now, we as Christians need to be drawn back continually back to the fact that this, this is big. Not, not just important. Yes, it's important. It's, 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 it's the most important. But how, how big this scale is, and that it is then that big, and it is drawn down like a magnifying glass setting fire to grass on, on specifically on you and your soul. It's personal. I mean, deeply personal. We're reading in the news all the time about ISIS, right? You know, the terrorists. And they've kidnapped people and they're chopping their heads off and they're videotaping it. And there, you know, there are uh, parents out there whose kids, I say kids, they're adults, um, are, are kidnapped by ISIS and they know it and the, and the parents are, are pleading with them, you know, what can we do to you know, have mercy on my son who you have so you don't just barbarically saw his head off, you know, as a warning. What if what if the world, like, what if you were kidnapped, you know? You were on a mission strip, you know, what you thought was a relatively safe place, and you were kidnapped, and you were held by ISIS, and the last guy just got his head chopped off. I mean, you'd be scared out of your mind. I would be too. And your parents would be in tears. What if the world said, we're going to get together 160,000 people to invade. We're going to combine the air forces of 13 countries and get 7,000 airplanes to attack 
we're going to get um, thousands and thousands of ships with hundreds of thousands of sailors to come to your rescue. We're going to drop 13,000 paratroopers all around the compound where you're being held. We're going to dedicate all of our resources, billions of dollars, a mind-blowing amount of logistics to save you. You know? To get you. You know? I mean, we're going to storm the beaches. We're going to, we're going to surround the mountains. I mean, we're going to set up a stronghold to get your butt out of there. You, you, you're, you're the only one that's left in that cell. It, it, would, it would be, what? Like hundreds of thousands of people and thousands and thousands of ships and airplanes and paratroopers, like for me, you know? Like the thing that, that has defined modern history in D-Day, like you, you did all of that, but now you're doing it all for me? I mean, that is a, a shadow of a comparison of this when we're talking about eternity past and eternity future, you know? And, and, but, but the focus is on the person work of Jesus Christ and, 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 and the direction that it has gone, and it's not just the single particular work that happened during those 33 years, um, but that it's personal brothers, that he became flesh and blood. Why? So that he might taste death for you. And then it almost sounds too simple to just say, so he can help you out when you're tempted. Doesn't that sound simple? You know, like, okay, you saved my soul. That's big. But you also can, can be the one who says, I know what it's like to be tempted with lust. I know what it's like to be tempted with frustration. I know. I've been there. I know what it's like to be tempted with loneliness or to be tempted with identity. I've, I've walked your shoes. And I will be there in your time of need. I will save your soul, but I will also be there in the everyday. You know? When you're just having a bad day, you don't feel like you should be having a bad day, but you just are. I'm there. This God with this focus ought to draw awe from us. Um, and hope and confidence. And as Christians, we are called to the gathering together of the believer so that we can spend time reflecting on these things that sometimes, because of the course of time, we just forget. We know it, we forget. And so we're called by believers to be here in this fellowship once out of every seven days for this purpose, to draw attention to the fact that we need to keep remembering that as our head drops, as we're getting tired, we need to have it lifted back up with the glory of the gospel in every little tiny situation that we're going through in life. Whether it's huge or whether it's small, that this is where hope lies and nowhere else. So as you go through your day and go through your week and figure out your own identity and figure out what you're about and the dealing with the sin that's in your life and dealing with 
the joys in your life. We have to keep our eyes on this. Because this is where hope and peace comes, and this is the only place where he is able to help us when we are being tempted. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this. I thank you for the grand scope. I thank you for the intimate focus. Father, I read this, but there's some of it that says, why? Who is man that you should treat us like this? And the answer is simply that you are God and you choose to. Father, please be with us now as we even go into worship that our hearts and our minds would be lifted high and that you would be pleased by our worship because of what you've done for us. In Jesus' name.